This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December 9th, and this is episode 269. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, there's no major news. There's just a potpourri, again, of provincial and federal stories to talk about. We'll go around the country starting at home. Thanks again to everyone who contributes to the show every month or annually. You help keep us going. You can join them. You can join our Slack. Sign up at patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. To go back to the greatest BC premier bracket we had a super close race this time between two of the liberal premiers of the past. It was Boss Johnson versus John Oliver. Boss Johnson took it narrowly with 52% of the vote, 12 votes to 11 over John Oliver. It doesn't get much closer than that. I feel sad. I feel like John Oliver was a real moment of BC history, but so was Boss Johnson in many ways. So, Boss Johnson will advance, and this week we look at our other two BC Liberal premiers in the semifinal. Really, the last of the old and the first of the new. Obviously, Boss Johnson was a Liberal, but he was a coalition Liberal. This week, we're looking at Thomas Dufferin, Patello, Duff Patello, and Gordon Campbell. So, let's go back to Duff Patello, and I'm using a few sources for this piece, including uh, a story on Czech News, and I'll link all of these in the show notes. Patello was the 22nd Premier from November 1933 to December 1941. He was born in Woodstock, Ontario. He made his way to Dawson City, where he was like the gold superintendent. Then he moved down to Prince Rupert, working in real estate and insurance. He became a alderman, then the mayor, and then got involved in provincial politics in 1916. He was a forestry minister, and once the liberals of the era were knocked out of power, he became the forestry minister until – and once the liberals were knocked out of power, he was leader of the opposition until 1933 when they won the election and he became premier. I, I dug up a McLean's piece from the era. I didn't get all the way through it, but it gives a profile of him from 1934 and it describes him as quite the opposite of the previous premier, Simon Fraser Tolmy, who we've talked about before, who was more of a farmer rustic guy. Patello, it describes as quite the dapper styling man, the guy who wears that's, the suits. That's an adjective you don't hear much. We, we need more dapperness in politics. Dapper politicians could be nice, although too often they end up being the Justin Trudeau style, and he doesn't have a dapperness to he's him. He's not dapper. Yeah, he's not dapper. <laughs> but yeah, they described him as wearing white flannels. He's BC's most elegant premier, and he landslid the Tories out. Like, sounds like a fascinating fellow. So... 
During his time, he hosted President Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt. When they stopped in Victoria, he hosted the King and Queen on their pre-World War tours in 1939. Probably they weren't billed that way. No. <laughs> he was elected during the Depression and, like I said, finishes during the war. So, he lives during or rules his governs during quite a tumultuous time. He had to dig the province out of debt. And I think when we talked about the conservative premier who he defeated, Tolmy, Tolmy had some troubles because of the depression and challenges. And so, Patello's approach to this was to just go full on building an infrastructure, spending to get the province out of the, the deficits and the, the deep joblessness of the era. This included famously building the bridge across the Fraser River from New West to Surrey, which- The uh, most his, rickety bridge in the Lower Mainland? It is now. It was actually quite the engineering feat at the time because it cost $4 million and they did it in a year. The new one will cost significantly more even with inflation and probably take a few more than just 12 months. Mind you, we also have much better worker safety rules around bridge building. In 1937, he ran and won re-election on a platform of, quote, socialized capitalism. During these years, the CCF was starting to really take off and be mount a significant challenge. I think in 37, he managed to make the strongest pushback on them by adopting a sort of softer version without necessarily going full, full socialism. It's more that like a Trudeau-style approach, let's say, where he runs a little to the left and maybe governs from the center. In 1941, though, he runs again and doesn't do as well. The CCF make major gains and this brings the Liberals to a minority. So, they're four seats short with the Conservatives holding a few. The CCF actually won the plurality of the vote but only got 14, 14 seats to the Liberals 21. And so, the Liberals knew that the Conservatives had to, they needed the support of the Conservatives because the CCF was not going to directly support this government because they were the government in waiting at this point. If the Governor General saw a vote of non-confidence, he could go to the CCF and give them the chance to govern. But Patello did not want to do a coalition with the Conservatives. And I found an essay f for BC Studies Journal by George Abbott, which I presume is the guy who went on to become a cabinet minister in the next guy's governments and in Christy Clark's governments, who said in his essay from 1994 that if Patello had said at the time that if the Liberals join the Conservatives, quote, it will start downhill and never again within a generation will it be power that it has been in British Columbia. In a year or two at most, it will be so weak, it will not be able to dissever, but will be forced to go to the people as a union party. And he was basically right. It took a little bit longer because it was the war, but by 1952, it was still a coalition government. It fell apart and then we didn't have the Liberals again until 2001. So, if anything, he was overly optimistic about how quickly the Liberals could dig themselves out of their hole. Of course, the Conservatives never came back. So, there you go. And this was an interesting era, right? Because Patello refused to join with the Conservatives, but he also didn't want a CCF government. And I think the argument in Patello's mind, as Abbott explores in his paper, is that Patello was worried that forming this you know, coalition, this free market coalition would create a two-party system in BC where eventually the CCF or later the NDP would win and that would make socialism far more possible than having three or more parties. And 
the CCF leader at the time actually argued the same thing. So, he was like, yeah, join together and then eventually we'll beat you because that's how Westminster systems work. Eventually, the opposition wins. So, Totello didn't have many people in his party who agreed with him though. So, eventually, they pushed him out and the next liberal, John Hart, takes over as premier. But it sounds like Patello was really concerned about the long term and didn't have much of a choice. So, I found another weird anecdote in here in that in 1932 and 33, the Conservatives had previously, when they were in government, asked Patello to form a coalition, form a union government, and he rejected it both times. So, at least he was consistent in his views. Uh, among the other facts I learned about Patello, he had at one point suggested the Yukon should just join BC, which... Why not? Yeah, there are worse ideas. This is a better idea than cutting Vancouver Island off and making it its own republic or its own monarchy. Kingdom. It was going to be a kingdom. Yeah, a queendom. The other thing we should flag is that a couple of years ago, the Chinese Canadian veterans group Pacific Unit 280, who were Chinese Canadians who fought in World War II for Canada, have called for Patello's name to be removed from the bridge when it's rebuilt. They say Duff Patello had written letters to Prime Minister Mackenzie King advising against allowing Chinese Canadians into the armed forces. Letting Chinese Canadians serve would undermine justifications for denying them the same rights as other Canadians, it read. In a meeting between Mackenzie King and Premier Patello advised King that although BC had no objection to taking in refugees, Jews were not wanted in the province. So, some not great views at the time, which were common, but we've thankfully moved on from those. So, weigh all of that in your consideration of the legacy of Duff Patello. I'll spend a little less time on Gordon Campbell because I think most people are quite familiar with him and his legacy. He was, of course, the 34th Premier from June 2001 to March 2011, in living memory for most of you listening. I hope we're not that old yet. He was mayor of Vancouver. He became the leader of the BC Liberal opposition during the 90s. He almost won the 1996 election, and many will point out that he won the tech. He technically won because he got the most votes, but did not get the most seats. But in 2001, all fortunes went to him as the BC NDP imploded and the BC Liberals won one of the largest majorities in provincial history. He would go on to win elections in 2004 and 2009 before resigning in scandal in 2011 due to a combination of the sale of BC Rail, the bringing in of the HST, and then losing the referendum on it. And I think just his party was tired of him by the, that point and the province. He did bring in the carbon tax and really made BC a leader on moving that environmental issue forward. He yeah, also, it was, I believe, the first one in North America and was, yeah, not only just a leader in Canada, but in the world on that sort of thing. Yeah, he also successfully brought the 2010 Olympics here, which were widely viewed as an overall economic success. This included you know, a number of major infrastructure developments, including the Canada Line, the Sea to Sky Highway upgrades, a uh, number of sporting facilities around the Lower Mainland. A lot of these, though, the criticism will come that they were pushed through like a neoliberal Thatcher-Reagan-style agenda on full force. 
So P3 is decentralizing shrinking government, famously like slashing income taxes and corporate taxes on day one of his government by significant amounts, downloading responsibilities to municipalities without giving them additional funding mechanisms, some of which puts us in the holes we're in today because local governments don't have the tools to respond to emergencies that they need. Didn't have a great start on Indigenous issues, including his referendum on what BCers should get in treaty negotiations, although I get the sense from some of the reviews and academic assessments of him that his views did improve over time. Campbell was notably very hostile to labor, including tearing up teachers' collective agreements, which were later viewed as or determined to be illegal. He did try to bring citizen he did try to bring electoral reform though. He brought in a citizens assembly and had two separate referendums. Man the man loved referendums. Yeah. If only he hadn't set the first one at a 60% threshold. Yeah, and requiring, I think, a majority of the constituencies right. to also yeah. Yeah, that was do it. that. But the, the main thing was it got 59%, which is a fairly clear majority. A few years ago, just to wrap up, there was an academic book published, The Campbell Revolution, question mark, Power, Politics, and Policy in British Columbia, which tries to argue about what his legacy should be and some people have said has was gordon campbell as impactful on this province as wac bennett with the guy we saw cruise through the social credit round of the bracket in that book they say of gordon campbell he was competent had a vision for the province and possessed exceptional management skills at the same time he could be obstinate impulsive and even detached from the myriad views and values that inform and energize provincial politics I don't think he stuck around long enough to be in the same category as Bennett. If he had another decade in, perhaps. Bennett's a, such a huge figure in this province. But here you go. Two BC Liberal premiers, both who I think their contemporaries described as rather obstinate. And although Campbell would change his views, but it was more based on what book he'd read most recently. But yeah. Duff Patello versus Gordon Campbell. Who do you like more? Vote politicos.ca slash bracket at politicospod on Twitter. Let's get into the potpourri of news for the week. Let's start with the Wet'suwet'en woes, the trouble for the NDP provincially and federally. Let's start with the news about who signed off on the RCMP redeployment. Yeah. So, as people who've been following this story are probably aware, the line out of the BC government is, this is all just the police doing what the police are uh, empowered to do and acting on the court injunction they have in their hands on that, and that nobody should ask them about it because this is completely out of their hands. Turns out that isn't entirely the case, as reporting out of APTN showed earlier this week that uh, the BC government had authorized the additional resources that the RCMP have been using for the ongoing policing related to the wet sweating. Yeah, so the basic principle is your executive shouldn't direct your policing arm of your government because otherwise you risk the dictatorships who sick the police on their political rivals kind of situation. 
there is a bigger question about oversight that should be reviewed and we're in the process provincially of a review of the police act but within this story there's this question of all right there's a certain amount of rcmp there's a certain amount of police in the broader region that includes the coastal gas link pipeline they determined that to enforce the injunction they needed more troops more cops let's say they're not Police troops. Officers. they're not troops they sometimes act like it without the what's the word i'm looking for the i am not sure without the discipline let's say um so the rcmp when they need to get more resources needs to make a special request to the solicitor general to the director of public safety who can sign off it on it under a provision within our agreement with the rcmp and the federal government that says this is enough of an emergency situation that yes you can go spend extra money and move extra cops into this area to do what you need to do and mike farnworth signed that approval this has been reported as the third approval in three years and it's unclear if he's ever actually turned one down the timing on this is super interesting because the enforcement actions came right as southern bc was being hit by the atmospheric river and it raised a lot of people's concerns and questions but it appears the decision to approve the redeployment was like the day before the river hit which would be keeping with their general uh lack of foresight on that you, you didn't we didn't know it was going to be so bad but and we didn't necessarily think we'd need a bunch of rcmp around to deal with it i don't know i'm not trying to really justify it the province was asked about this and the ministry gave a generic statement to aptn saying enforcement decisions are made by police politicians do not direct police operations in bc in this case the bc supreme court issued an injunction decision which included an enforcement order following that the rcmp requested the ability to temporarily redeploy resources if needed in response and it was essentially rubber stamped which i think at this point after we've seen multiple cases where the rcmp have allegedly overreached and been ex used excessive force at some point the minister i think does need to hold some responsibility there in overseeing the cops and reining yeah. them in and saying maybe this time you don't get your extra toys yeah i'm not sure the the line that has been very popular out of the ndp is one that's particularly viable or tenable going forward on the politicians don't direct the police because there is a general expectation that as employees agents of the state etc that they are ultimately accountable to elected officials just as a general expectation and also as a there are obviously things where the oversight could be improved there and yeah you absolutely don't want politicians say deciding who gets to be investigated and who doesn't or having the executive just decide that certain court orders are not going to be enforced both of those would be generally bad for the rule of law nevertheless there's probably a the optimum is probably not where we are and is in fact closer to uh a more direct oversight role and, and also point out that the same democratic concerns around not wanting the politicians to be you know, 
using the power of the state too much for their own ends would in theory also apply to the armed forces, but there is more direct oversight there in a way that has not caused problems. So there is definitely room for improvement there, and I'm not sure how much longer the the general public is going to be finding Farnworth's position on this to be credible. Well, it's weird politically, right? Because who's the audience that this position is appeasing? Because the average person, it's like with Kennedy Stewart trying to convince people he's not anti-cop. It's your general ideological positioning is on the center left or is seen on the left. And so people assume you're going to be more not as deferential to the police and want to rein them in or do not use that, you know, toolkit as much. But here they're trying to buck that and it's going to piss off your base and it's it feels like when the NDP is like obsessive about running a balanced budget, it, it's yeah, that's good, but it's also who are you winning over? There are people that for whom a fiscal responsibility balanced budget thing is important, even if they aren't doctrinaire BC liberals. It's definitely a reachable voter profile. Maybe that was a, that was a bad example, but you yeah, got this one point. seems a little less. Certain, just because fossil fuel projects are so polarized along partisan lines that it strikes me as a challenge to to figure out where that falls here and who's the swing voter on a natural gas pipeline in northern BC. Presumably it's a voter in northern BC and that's where it seems like we're also seeing some cracks within NDP caucuses provincially and federally around how to respond to this, notably provincially MP, MLA and cabinet member Nathan Cullen published a letter he sent to RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky this week asking about some of these issues. He said to quote just a couple bits, I have seen a disturbing video in which two young residents in my constituency were arrested with undue force, but then he spends about two-thirds of the letter deferring to the RCMP and saying things like, I want to acknowledge RCMP enforcement action appeared to commence only after every opportunity for the parties in the dispute to reach resolution was extinguished. And then he asked for maybe some review of the actions that were undertaken. The RCMP commissioner responded saying they would not comment on specific incidents. The RCMP obviously according to them, always try to avoid confrontation and use nonviolence to solve things. But when necessary, police will use as much force as necessary. And the politics around this is fascinating, though, because as I mentioned, Cullen is in cabinet. He is a member of the government and not just like a backbench MLA. And so his letter is being framed as he wrote it as the representative of these individuals as their MLA, but it definitely went through and was approved to be publicized and go out by cabinet. It's all weird. It's the, the we're all trying to figure out who did this meme come to life. It, like it's one thing if he was a backbench MP, but as a cabinet minister, there's the general cabinet, cabinet solidarity. That's the right term that's expected where the government moves together on this and, and well all their decisions so it's 
it's a weird thing for a cabinet minister to semi-publicly kind of position themselves not fully in line with the government they are a part of. And like, it was the softest, could you look into this a little bit kind of letter. So maybe that's how he gets away with it. It got him a pretty solid headline that he was probably hoping for in the Vancouver Sun from Vaughn Palmer, who says Cullen taking RCMP to task over handling of coastal gas link pipeline protesters. Uh, Palmer's article is basically entirely based off Cullen's letter on Twitter and like another reply where he mentions that, yes, it was reviewed by cabinet or something like that. So there's not much in there, but it's, you know, interesting to see how it gets read and spun in like the Vancouver sun, especially given that tension. You can compare that to what's going on with the federal NDP this week, where NDP members across the country have been quite mad about the handling of this situation and have been putting pressure, particularly on Jugmeet Singh and the federal NDP to take a stance. Now, this is a provincial pipeline and policing is a provincial issue here, but because the RCMP are involved, there is a federal line. And because the NDP is the NDP, if you're a member of the federal party, you're a member of the provincial party and vice versa, there does seem to be a need for Singh to take a clear stand on this. Now, Singh and the federal NDP did put out a single statement condemning an excessive force, which I would hope all politicians oppose the excessive use of force by police because it's illegal to use excessive force. But the petitions have started and a number of riding associations have started criticizing the federal NDP asking for more. And one of those petitions got picked up and uh, amplified by three members of parliament within the NDP caucus, Leah Gazan, Laurie Idlout, apologies if I got that wrong, and Matthew Green, fairly prominent leftists within the party, the more activist ones. Uh, so they're trying to, at least on Twitter, promote this petition. CBC reached out to them and none of them uh, would answer the reporter's call. So their commitment to this cause uh, gets called into question as well because there's nothing the left likes to do more than eat its own. <laughs> it's a mess, is all. Yeah, there's a reason parties that were formerly one party at uh, the federal and provincial levels ha have had those ties weakened and I believe the Ontario Liberal Party used to be the same party as the Federal Liberal Party, and the Venn diagram of people active in both is pretty much a circle. They nevertheless do allow themselves that little bit of flexibility by not being literally the same organization. Like the strengths of tying it together, I think the NDP has lost in how it's become a more modern political machine as opposed to the political machine and social movement it was of the earlier eras when it was also trying to advance a radically different view of society rather than just like liberals in a hurry which they really are just now and yeah and like you used to be I mean, the the other parties that are ran by having kind of the informal networks do a lot of that coordination work between the different levels rather than the, the formal networks as the NDP is still using. 
that. So you do have to wonder if they'd be better off embracing the proud Canadian tradition of federalism and kind of splitting things up a little more on that and just relying on kind of those informal networks. Because I'm sure the people active in the BC NDP will be active in the federal NDP, even if they're technically no longer the same party. But it Other would than least... the ones who are involved in the federal liberals. Yeah, maybe that's a bad example. BC is weird. But, but like uh, the Alberta NDP is definitely not always in sync with the federal NDP. Which has caused more problems than it has probably... Which has caused more problems than it has helped them in the grand scheme of things. In any case, there's still this open question of what the BC government's going to do about this situation. It seems like they're eager to sit on their hands and let things just play out, pointing blame everywhere else, which I think takes us to the next story, which is the coroner's report that came out today for October, recording another 201 deaths for from illicit drug overdoses, which is the deadliest month ever in this province and makes 2021 the deadliest year ever as we're on track for 2,000 people to die from toxic drugs. And the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction's reply was to say people should try to use drugs more safely and that they're maybe doing some things, but there's a lot of criticism going around. Isn't that a pretty much her only job is to make uh, public statements considering the m- ministry is basically a shell that's there for PR reasons more than anything else and doesn't do any actual service delivery? It's a lot of comm staff, but comm staff can work on consultations and developing strategies for things to work together and be more effective. But when we look at the results, regardless of what it's designed to do regardless of how it's structured but the pure results are it's none of it's working nothing is sufficient enough this is pretty clear to everyone in any manner like our overdose rates are awful in every part of this province it highlights it affects everyone everywhere it's particularly acute among young men but don't think you couldn't be affected by this i've i saw all the BC Liberal leadership contenders had very strong words out on this because how can you not? The BC Liberal Party weirdly pointed to Alberta's approach. I think mostly just trying to highlight that they've opened more recovery beds, which is something we should be doing more of. But I worry about the focus on making sure those I worry that Alberta is not necessarily insured every recovery bed it's opened is focused on evidence-based treatment that will necessarily help. But we don't need to get into that part. How do we fix it, Scott? (laughs) That is quite the challenge on that. Uh, Just circling back to the politics just for a moment, though. Like, I... I remember when John Horgan absolutely just tore in to the old government over their handling of this, accusing them of complete disinterest, not caring. Some pretty nasty, strong language was directed their way. But if you actually look at the chart, like every year except one has been worse than the time when the BC Liberals were in power. And and that has only just barely slid under the 2016 numbers by just a couple deaths on the 2019 ones. So, like, 
you do got to wonder if they've if there's ever going to be a mutable or kind of a f- recognition that this was actually more difficult than they they made it out to be at the time. How to solve it though? That's a tough question. Like it's clear that what we're doing is not working. What actually gets that under control is a uh, not necessarily something that's going to be easy to do and it's probably going to require a lot more resources to be directed towards treatment options. But the exact how is definitely a challenge. So I think it's not actually as hard as we're making it out to be. I think like the chief coroner has clear suggestions and recommendations. The challenge is the radical rethinks that are required to actually make it happen. The things that we need, the things that are killing people, it's not just that people are addicted to drugs. It's that the drugs that they are taking, even just the first time, are poisoned. They're filled with fentanyl, carfentanyl, and all the additional things that are being cut in to make the top levels of the drug tier and organized crime more money because it's cheaper and they can get away with it. So, how do we make the drugs safer is we need safe supply. And we don't, the programs we've gone so far, as Lisa LaPointe the uh, chief coroner points out are far too limited and have an absurd number of barriers, including like only certain clinicians can prescribe and you have to go through certain, like it's still demeaning to the people who need it. So if we can cut all of that out and just give people clean drugs or give programs that let us let people test their drugs without fear of criminalization or punishment. So drug decriminalization of possession at minimum needs to happen. And the fact the federal government is sitting on its hands on that, some blame should probably go there because Trudeau has now been asked by the province and the city to do something about this. And Health Canada seems to just not care. Those deaths are on their hands as well. But BC can also push ahead on starting to roll out safe supply programs and just call off the cops. Yeah, although I, it is worth uh, point out that I believe it was Natai that reported this. It, it did get a bit of play elsewhere, I think, today as well. That our rates per hundred thousand, or our per capita rates, are higher than some places in the U.S. that have been struggling with overdoses as well. That don't have the same harm reduction strategies in place that we do. So it, it's, I'm not saying those aren't important, but there seems to be other factors at play here as well if we're getting kind of those numbers and are doing more on the harm reduction side than the uh, comparison jurisdictions i think it's a mat so it's the death rates that was in that comparison i posted that on our slack and it yeah it comes from a tie piece today by mora witten i'll make sure whiten and i'll make sure to put that in the show notes like i mean it it's fascinating to look at that comparison. It's also hard to tell like what is in those drugs versus ours. Like it might just be that ours are almost all poisoned, in which case it is that much riskier here. A lot needs to be more needs to be known in the short term. We just need ways for people to be safe because when it's this poisoned, it's not even just a matter of people who are addicted and who are using every day or multiple times a day, it's, oh, someone 
gets convinced to try something or gets pressured into trying something or thinks, I'm just having a bad day, I'll try this. And with some friends who you trust, but they got something that's bad and suddenly you've OD'd. So it's a disaster. It's an ongoing disaster that new solutions are needed for. And that's what one court in on the Vancouver Island in Campbell River tried to do with something that's being framed as possibly precedent-breaking. I think it is precedent-breaking. Whether or not it gets upheld on appeal is, I think, the open question on that one. So this is the case of a woman who was facing up to three years in jail for trafficking fentanyl. She and her lawyer argued, though, that putting this woman in jail would not be of social value would not be of value to the individual would not be would not help and so they managed to trade it in for a, a probation hearing the argument being that this woman uh, has been addicted to different substances since she was in grade 8 including crack cocaine and had basically fallen into dealing to cover her habits and so she was like a low level street dealer had been in and out of jail for various things, including trafficking previously, as well as a number of petty crimes like um, shoplifting and so forth. So, the court really was faced with this question of, this person keeps going to jail. That doesn't seem to get her to clean up, or if it does, it's not for very long. What would putting her in jail again do? Seems unjust. Let's not be tied to a previous court ruling in a straitjacket manner, in the words of the judge, and let's cut this person a break. Well, I can't say I'm a particular fan of this decision or really agree with the the rationales there. Like I, We were talking a bit about decriminalization earlier for personal possession, and I think that's a pragmatic approach. But pre, under pretty much any plausible decriminalization scenario, the sale and distribution of drugs would particularly something as dangerous and addictive as fentanyl would still be an offense. This is not a if there was no if decriminalization had been brought forward by the liberals, this case wouldn't have come forward because the it would almost certainly still have remained an offense on that front. So the comparisons to decriminalization, I think, are rather tenuous at best. And yes, there's definitely a element of how do we rehabilitate people, get them to a, a spot where they can be more productive members of society sort of question or part of the, the justice system. But it isn't the only part either. And it's those other parts that seem to have been glossed over in a pretty big way here. Like so, to be clear, in this case, the judge didn't nullify the law, right? This person is still guilty. This person was still found guilty. The judge simply suspended the sentence in favor of a year's probation. So, the law has been upheld. It's just the decision about how long should this person be sentenced for has been shifted. And now being convicted of a crime or a drug offense will still have reverberations on your life. And some of those reverberations 
actually impede your ability in many cases to get clean since it can affect what employment you can take up or what loans you can qualify. And life gets harder when you've been convicted of something. And when you have a hard life, you can often fall into a trap that we've seen. Yeah, but um, circling back to the the first principles aspect of this, like there is just a general duty that all citizens, members of society, however you want to categorize it, have to obey the law and uphold that in their personal conduct and whatnot. And there, when there is a breach of it, there does need to be some rectification of that breach of the the individual's duty there and that doesn't really seem to have been taken into account as much here and (sighs) fentanyl is a serious harmful and addictive drug it's not a it's not necessarily something that should be easily glossed over on the potential harms of distributing it as well. It's not the equivalent of a marijuana, which is effectively a a pretty much a harmless or or very low-risk substance. So with respect to that, I I do think there does need to be some consequence of some sort, and the... I don't want to phrase it. And a, a history of addiction definitely something I think one can be sympathetic to doesn't really negate that the general requirement to behave in a lawful manner and for there to be appropriate consequences when that obligation is breached. And a year's probation on a suspended sentence feels discordant with the breach that has been affected here. I come at it from a different point of view. I don't think the value of our justice system should be punitive, but should be more restorative. If our long-term goal is to live in a more peaceful and just society where people aren't committing crimes, then our sentences should be tailored in ways that can work towards restorative justice rather than just necessarily punitive for the sake of that person should be punished for doing a thing. In this case, specifically, the judge talks about moral culpability and argues that this person who is more of a street dealer has far less more moral culpability than someone high up the drug, high up the chain. This person, for example, they are motivated not for profit or greed, but to ensure their own supply and to avoid the severe effects of withdrawal, according to the justice. So it's not necessarily that they're actively trying to commit crimes for their own personal gain. It's just they're not, they're trying to survive. And I, I've never had been in that situation. I, I've, you know, listened and tried to listen to people who have, and it, it sounds rough to put it the least. And maybe this isn't, this is the problem with one off cases is. This judge can't solve the broader systemic problems that led this individual to this situation. But this judge is at least trying to stop a cycle of harm. And I I value that at least. And sometimes it does take a couple radical decisions like this to really upend the approach. Like the reason abortion is legal in this country is because Henry Morgenthaler kept opening abortion clinics and giving abortions and got put in jail for it. 
And sometimes juries uh, let him out or let him off, even though he had done it because they nullified the law. Are are we really comparing the sale of fentanyl to abortion? Like, that doesn't seem to be anywhere near equivalent. So, my point is simply that the law is having an unjust effect by maintaining a cycle of poverty and addiction and at least in here like the law itself hasn't been nullified like i said again and i don't necessarily think it necessarily should be but when we talk about decriminalization of personal possession people still have to get their drugs from somewhere they're still going to get them so it's hard to say you can have a thing without being able to sell it well, and I mean, that's like the mainstream and decriminalization. Is- like the mainstream position, you're right, and most organizations who advocate for uh, decriminalization focus solely on personal possession because it's pretty far in the realm to say we should be allowing drug dealers to sell drugs because when people think about drug dealers, they think about the Hell's Angels and those are bad and no one likes those. But then there's people like this in this case, and this is a common situation. And these people aren't necessarily out there trying to profit off misery, like they say. So, I think it is complicated, and I think it does raise additional questions that need to be thought about more yeah, as we I, move I, forward. I'm not quite sure it's as harmless as that, because as we talked about kind of in the previous uh, story there, is the drug supply does have some issues with being tainted, and one of the effects of that is that people who are using for the first time are overdosing as a result and that like under any plausible scenario of uh decriminalization or even legalization there would still be some fairly significant regulations particularly on a, a drug that is so prone to causing overdoses and addictions as fentanyl that you would not have street dealing be an acceptable distribution method even under those scenarios. So there's really no plausible way this would be a case where there wouldn't be the general a breach of the law had it happened there. I will just close off with one last thought and then we can move on to another story. Like one of the challenges with our trafficking laws is so sales and trafficking can be interpreted quite widely. Like in some cases, trafficking is simply oh, you shared it with a friend and because you passed the drugs from one person to another, it is considered trafficking and the cops will bust you. So when we're talking about trying to get police out of many of the situations and focus on healthcare and harm reduction approaches, the cops are still going to use trafficking offenses to harass people who are otherwise just trying to survive. But that isn't what happened. That's not this case I'm talking about. In this case, the undercover officer had been introduced to the defendant by a drug dealer introduced as a customer was how it was described in the court document and purchased did undercover buys at least three times so that like that is a different scenario than one user helping out another user and one that a scenario that should probably in this case be discouraged yeah, so th- I'll just leave it with the the thought that the the harm aspects are definitely a part of it. It's not that's not the only role of the law and the enforcement of the law, and that kind of the laws are how we as a society handle coordination and decide how we 
the rules that apply to all of us and those have to continue to apply to all of us or it ultimately undermines those very important foundational aspects in a way that I don't think any of the proponents of this decision necessarily want to see happen, but is nevertheless a downstream risk of the trend that may be reflective here of it. Well, let's pivot over to a different provincial story. Let's talk about the BC Liberal leadership race, which is ongoing. It is one person larger as Stan Sipos has drag raced his way into being a candidate. And I was very disappointed to learn that the kind of drag racing he did involved cars and not dresses. <laughs> it would have been a better race if it was the other drag racing because he was a champion. He is a self-described car guy. So Stan Sipos is the president of Silo Properties, a real estate development company in Victoria. And like I mentioned, he is within the Canadian Drag Racing Hall of Fame. He's a car guy. Came to Canada, as he describes on his website. Uh, he was born in an Eastern Bloc communist country of Yugoslavia. His mother passed away before his second birthday and his father seeking to escape communism and find a new life in a democratic country, left Stan in the care of his grandparents. Two years after Stan's father escaped to Italy, he rescued Stan through the Red Cross. They went through a refugee camp and then landed in Canada as refugees. He's got a like strong life story of the work your way up from the bottom. Yeah, if you were to try and create like the perfect BC liberal biography in a lab, it would look pretty close to this. Love that the first sentence involves escaped a communist country. It's just the Eastern Bloc was a terrible place. Like it, no, I know. Yeah, it's, it, it's just it amusing like said, to it, me. It fits the the mold very exactly. well in that respect. So like I, yeah, if I was trying to write a biography of a a BC Liberal candidate, that's and that was in there. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to start with that too. So yeah, in that respect, it. Yeah, it's a, it's a strong kind of general biography that will definitely appeal to members of the BC Liberal Party. I, he's coming in late, doesn't have much name recognition. Like, I, I don't think he's going to go anywhere because of those factors. Doesn't have a history in elected office. Doesn't... It, yeah, it's really it weird did, for him to jump this, in this way. Didn't light, jump right? in early enough to build name recognition as an outsider we are at this moment by the time you're hearing this it'll be a week until the membership cut off so if you're planning on going the leadership race do make sure you have your memberships in good standing by the 17th but because of that it's going to be a very challenging situation for him to actually win in, in terms of platform content he's seems to be running on a more of a centrist liberal thing to the extent that anyone actually has any platforms, but... It, he's got a significant amount more than many of the candidates. Like, he's got more than Brene Merrifield by a lot. He says things like, we should become a global leader in fighting climate change. He says we will stop old-growth logging on day one, supporting non-old-growth logging, which is more than the BCNDP have said. He would bring affordable housing across the province. He would manage the your tax dollars like you manage your own bank account, which is just 
standard BC Liberals talking, but he would fix inefficient provincial and municipal politics. He would bring evidence-based solutions to homelessness and mental health and addictions, which everyone says they will do, expand the tech sector, and work collaboratively in a bipartisan manner to bridge the divide currently plaguing politics on both sides of the political spectrum and make life better for everyone regardless of political affiliation. So, it's a bit, you know, idealistic, and I like that. I can like that. Yeah, that's will be interesting to watch uh, him in the upcoming debate. I believe the Nets one is scheduled for, I think it's the 14th one. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to watch him in the Nets debate scheduled for December 14th. And I guess see how things play out in the last month and a bit of the leadership race now that he's in it. I, I am getting slight uh, is it George Steve vibes for those who paid attention to the early days of the 2018 local races here in Vancouver. Feels very similar to that kind of latecomer business background sort of thing. Yeah, who knows? Maybe he'll have more success. Some of the other candidates are making announcements without really announcing them, either by one email or like slipping it in the caption of a Facebook video that then doesn't mention in the video. We're talking about how Ellis Ross is going to build, sorry, he's going to replace the Coca Hall with a new super connector fortress highway from Langley to Kamloops. Super highway just might be the most 90s phrase possible. Also, the he wants to build an 8 to 10. He wants to widen Highway 1, essentially, through the Fraser Valley from eight up to 8 to 10 lanes, which is obnoxious and it's, a yeah, bad it's idea. It's certainly more than you need. Uh, it has the same problems of induced demand that any large road, road project does. The traffic spans to fill the increased capacity because now it's easier to drive places. So trips that people didn't take before because of the traffic, will they will now take recreating the traffic. So that's questionable. The part east of Hope is actually less so depending on what exactly the fortress high rate means. It will probably not surprise anyone. That is not a technical engineering term but lightly refers to a desire to build a highway that is less prone to damage from severe weather events, which I suppose is good, but... Presumably a, the government is looking at the exact same thing. Yeah, it, it in that respect, it's good to stake out that position, but it's not necessarily clear that how much that's an actual differentiator. Kevin Falcon has committed to SkyTrain to UBC, Langley, and the North Shore in without a major announcement, but good. I'd like to see it. Yeah, I, I don't get why he would wasn't making a bigger deal about that, but yeah, no, that's very significant. Uh, basically added one SkyTrain line a decade here, and if that realistically means that's going to be increased more, that would be great. There was a lot of criticism of how the Canada line was built in terms of the P3 that was used and how it was done in a cut and cover that harmed many of the businesses along Camby Street. And that's particularly poignant criticism given Kevin Falcon was the transportation minister at the time many of that started. Yeah. But cover makes sense from an engineering point of view, but yeah, the handling of the 
business stuff is always a challenge with those projects. But yeah, it was just politically unfeasible as a result of that to do Titan cover for the Broadway line. So it's been bored. The Evergreen line expansion, I think, was also under the BC Liberals, but after his departure from the portfolio, which I think is generally seen as the more successful of the two projects. Uh, on Still that. delayed and over budget, I believe, but that's wasn't, pretty common. It was common. pretty close to being on budget, I believe. Okay. It's definitely um, delayed. Yeah. North Shore... I'm very interested in the North Shore line. In, well, the Skytrain to UBC, that's the obvious thing you have to finish, because it's a half a Skytrain line is being built right now, which is just stupid, and should have been funded for a full go all at once. So yeah, obviously finish that one. And But the North Shore one's significant. The uh, North Shore municipalities uh, a couple months ago put out a proposal for a second arrows crossing, and if this means uh, a commitment from the likely next leader of the BC Liberals, that would be good news, and one that I hope ends up going with the Hastings alignment, but we'll... And the only other thing I wanted to say from the BC Liberal leadership race is that I love that, as many people have pointed out, Gavin Dew's entire campaign seems to be a pub crawl across breweries in the province, and you know what? Politics is about having fun. Yeah, I'm d- I it? am down for that. Like, yeah, it's it's a good way to... It shouldn't be the only type of event you do, and I don't think it is his only one. It's definitely the ones that have drawn the most attention, I think. It's the one he highlights the most. I scrolled through a lot of his recent posts, and most of them are at pubs. And he hashtags them, hashtag do brews, and you can join the hashtag do crew. But he missed saying you should join him for the hashtag holidays coming up. Am I reaching on that one too much? A little bit. Okay. So jumping over to Ottawa, some follow-up to a couple stories we've discussed in the past. Last, I believe it was last week, might have been the week before, we talked about how the Liberals had come to the opposition parties with a plan to create an ad hoc committee with screened members with security clearance to review the documents related to the firing of scientists from the Winnipeg lab. Tories have rejected this proposal and instead want to have the House of Commons clerk with the advice of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service director and the National Security Advisors to review those documents and decide what information should be redacted instead of the committee proposal. I'm just curious what we'll learn and when. This feels like filing an FOI and being I filed an, a federal ATIP request in February 2020, and I paid $5 for that, and I got told they needed an extension, and I've never heard from them again. So, feels like that. Only they have a democratic, a beyond dem- the constitutional right to this information, so good luck. Meanwhile, the opposition members are also opening up another investigation into the government, looking into the handling of the Kabul Af evacuation from Afghanistan, particularly the fact that we're trying to resettle 40,000 Afghan refugees, but so far only 4,000 have arrived, and it's all been a mess, and MPs want to ask some questions. So they've launched a committee to do that, rather than take up the government's offer to just consider it a bit in the Foreign Affairs Committee, Good, which seems good. Uh, yeah, yeah they, the whole Afghanistan withdrawal and 
both supporting the refugees coming out of there as well as evacuating the Afghans that we worked with and owe a debt to there was a bit of a disaster. So having parliamentary accountability and parliamentary review on that is welcome news. Canada has also announced that we are joining, I think it was Australia first and the US in not sending diplomats to the Beijing Olympics, to which China replied, who cares? It is a good step, but also it it is a about the least you can do short of not doing anything at all. I, I guess it is one step above st- sternly worded letter, but not much more than that. Uh, nevertheless, it, it is a good sign on that that we're taking the concerns of the human rights situation there seriously and the ongoing genocide against the Uyghur minority in the Xinjiang province. I'll also add the UK has joined in as well on that. I think it would be more impactful if it was a full boycott and not just the the diplomats are staying home, but the Team Canada is there in full. And finally, on the national security foreign affairs front, news this week reported by uh, Global News is out that the Canadian security establishment, our signals intelligence and cyber warfare organization has acknowledged that they've conducted cyber operations against foreign hackers to quote impose a cost for the growing levels of cyber crime. This is the first public acknowledgement of the use of a foreign cyber operation which can include both offensive and defensive tools and this it comes out of authorization granted by the Liberal government in 2019. It's an interesting story. It's like not in the area I follow that closely. It does raise like civil liberties questions for me anytime the government is taking an active role in deterrence. I know this is happening largely abroad. It, it, the rules under their authorization are such that they can't target canadians or things on canadian soil in that respect yeah the those specific civil liberties concerns should be uh somewhat allayed uh, my, my concerns for humans rights do extend beyond the border of our country and the actions our government takes i hope are consistent domestically and abroad but we know that's not always true at the same time i also hate all these phone calls i keep getting that they promised me would stop and and that's the most trivial of cyber crimes compared to some of the hacking and um, cyberware yeah. attacks being I, I sent. In, yeah, I am entirely fine with uh, CSE just destroying all every surfer that gets used in those robo-spam robo calls on that, as well as anything else there. And this is going to be an increasingly important part of... Uh, national security as well as international combat and international crime. So it is good to see them both develop this capability and start to deploy it. We obviously are not privy to the specific details of the operation carried out in this case, but as we've seen, there's been a bunch of high-profile cyber attacks both in Canada and with 
against our allies. And it is something we will have to both defend against and potentially have to learn how to, or not just potentially, and learn how to deploy ourselves so we can maintain a, a level playing field and respond to the continually evolving both global climate as well as the status of uh, Cybertrime, which is a very difficult thing to prosecute or bring to justice under the current setup of international law, or domestic laws for that matter. Very hard getting it to prove or get extraditions uh, against offenders on that. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>